Welcome to the Mental Horizons podcast, which is owned and produced by the therapeutic consulting practice of Virgil Stucker and Associates, LLC. Created by Stephanie McMahon and co-hosted by her and Virgil, the podcast shines light on the creative, solution-oriented, and optimistic thinking of individuals who are leaders in the field of mental health care. Previous episodes with associated blog posts can be seen on the website virtualstuckerandassociates.com, where the book The Family Guide to Mental Health Recovery is also available. If you are a leader or know of a leader who would like to be interviewed on a future podcast, please contact us through this website as well. Good day. This is Virgil Stucker welcoming you to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Mental Horizons Podcast. Our topic today is focused on pandemic-adapted legal remedies. Legal remedies, that is, to optimize mental health treatment. We're hoping that our conversation will be a guide for families for both short- and long-term mental health treatment solutions, especially as they try to navigate the waves of the pandemic. Today's episode is with Lisa Kukier, partner at Burns & Levinson in Boston where Lisa is also a member of the firm's executive committee. Lisa Kukier splits her practice between high-conflict divorces and high-profile trusts and estate litigation, as well as law at the intersection of psychiatry, and is on the show today because she is well-known for her ability to handle the toughest of cases and is particularly skilled at handling sensitive matters where mental illness is a concern. Lisa's practice also includes handling complex child custody, family law issues, blended family issues, adoption, and guardianship and conservatorship. She received her JD from Suffolk University Law School and her BA from Northeastern University and was a 2018 Women Worth Watching Award recipient. The Women Worth Watching organization identifies, promotes, and supports women in leadership and Lisa was nominated by her peers as an executive who embodies exceptional purpose and drive and represents diversity within her sphere of influence. Before going to law school, by the way, and becoming an attorney, Lisa also worked as a social worker, which makes her very well prepared with a depth of understanding of mental health issues. Lisa, welcome to Mental Horizons podcast. Thank you, Virgil. I'm delighted to join you again. Oh, so delighted to have this conversation again with you. So by way of opening, let's talk for a moment about the continuum of mental health care and keep focused on the concept of hope for mental health recovery, even though both have been somewhat threatened by the waves and disruptions caused by the pandemic. Basically, what I mean by the, quote, continuum is the array of treatment and support that families seek for a family member who is sometimes acute and may need hospital care or subacute and may need a very contained environment with a high level of clinical support, sometimes longer-term residential treatment along the continuum, and then also outpatient treatment options, which are growing in not only number, but robustness from a clinical point of view. Well, frankly, some knew that this continuum was already a piecemeal patchwork most often and hard to access before the pandemic. Because of pandemic-related shifts, we've had to change our strategies for families seeking to plan and access care and predict that some of these changes will need to stay in place for the foreseeable future. Today's episode will explore some of these shifts 
and we will invite Lisa as an expert mental health attorney to help us see how best to navigate these changes. So thinking of three significant shifts, let's look first of all, Lisa, at I sense an urgency that aging parents may be feeling to enhance estate planning. Our listeners may not be aware that over 8.4 million U.S. families and growing are caring long-term for a family member with mental illness whose average age is 45. Their parents are over 65 and worried even more about their vulnerability these days. You know, the pandemic is causing increased anxiety in these families who are wondering what will happen to their family member in the future. Lisa, how can an attorney help these families who are feeling very vulnerable to integrate long-term care and treatment planning for their mentally ill adult child into their estate planning? What are some of the legal remedies? Can you tell us? Yes, thanks, Virgil. So, you know, just as there is a continuum of care. There's also a legal solution continuum that also tracks the needs of a patient as they go from acute to subacute residential and outpatient. Uh, and so there are strategies that can be used at various points in that continuum. And I should say that, yes, there are parents over 65, but even those parents are so young. 65 is young uh, in today's standards. And so the very same type of legal planning tools that I'm about to discuss that can be used for the adult children of uh, parents can also be used for the parents themselves. So the tools that I'm going to mention are not necessarily limited to the adult children, and they're also not necessarily limited to those who are thinking about retirement or who are retired. So one very important tool, especially in a pandemic, is to have a healthcare proxy. A healthcare proxy is a document that enables a competent person to select someone to make healthcare-related decisions for them in the event that they later have a period where they're not competent to make those very same healthcare decisions themselves. And healthcare proxies can have language in them that gives the agent, the decision maker, special and extra authority. So there was a case decided in Massachusetts just last week uh, that, that uh, allowed a healthcare proxy to uh, be sufficient in a psychiatric facility in lieu of a court order to treat with medications because the proxy document had contemplated antipsychotic medications it was tailored sufficiently. It was not one of these form healthcare proxies that you get online, but it was one that had been developed and created with various contingencies in mind. This is why it's important to go to a lawyer for a healthcare proxy and not pick a document out of a uh, online server type of thing or a website. Uh, but the document was, uh, was used to enable the patient to receive antipsychotic medications because there was, there was a decision maker uh, who had been nominated to make those decisions. Healthcare proxies can be used 
children who may, you know, they may be over the age of 18 and the adult parents, the parents of the adult child rather, are often prohibited from getting medical records and information from care providers for the adult child because there are HIPAA requirements. And our role as parents ends in some ways when our children turn 18 and when they turn 21, and we no longer have the right to receive information about our children, our adult children, when they age into majority. And therefore, parents of children who are adults, but who are suffering through the mental health crisis and in in the system, uh, very often need our advocacy as parents, but the parents have their hands tied because they're not getting information in the first place. They're not getting information from doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, all the different providers, they might not be getting medical records and they don't know what's going on. And the parents in these situations are trying to make the situation better. They're trying to plan for discharge. They're trying to plan for aftercare. And they're thinking about solutions, both clinical and legal, on the continuum so that they can promote a long-term recovery through residential and outpatient options and aftercare Uh, methods. But without this information, they are completely hamstringed and unable to act. So a healthcare proxy can have terms in there that will enable the parents to receive the very HIPAA-protected information that they need to promote a longer-term recovery on the continuum of care that you mentioned, Virgil. It's so important. Another similar document is a durable power of attorney. This is a document, again, that should not be just printed offline. It should be developed and created uh, and tailored to the needs by a lawyer. This is a document that we can use to nominate somebody to make financial decisions for us in the event that we have trouble down the line and can't make those financial decisions or financial transactions ourselves. And let me give you an example. What if one of us became ill due to COVID-19 and ended up for a period of time in the hospital, unable to pay mortgage and to look after our financial accounts or portfolios? Or what if we were unable to make certain payments and, and pay for the needs of people who depend on us? Well, we would need somebody to transact for us. What if taxes are due? What if we are to be receiving compensation from a firm and we need somebody to make that happen for us? So a durable power of attorney can be used in that situation. And for our adult children, they should have a durable power of attorney also with some special features. In addition to the HIPAA language that I discussed in connection with the healthcare proxy, a durable power can have FERPA language. This relates to the Federal Educational Act that keeps our educational records private from other people. And that means that our adult children, our children who have aged into majority, have the right to have their educational records, including those quasi-clinical records that come out of a educational facility, such as the health services for a college, those remain private and the parents can't access them. And therefore, without a durable power of attorney that includes FERPA language, 
parents find themselves again hamstringed. They can't assist. I have a lovely client whose adult child uh, suffered and uh, found himself psychiatrically hospitalized. The college didn't know what happened and he simply didn't show up for class and he didn't respond to emails. The school didn't know what happened and he ended up with a fail. And the school, when he got out of the hospital, he explained and the school said, fix this. You, you just give us the documentation, provide us what you need so that we know and we can fix it for you to a medical incomplete. But he was not able to do that. The very same mental health issues that he is suffering from that caused the need for placement in a psychiatric facility also hindered his ability to meet his own needs and provide the documentation required to turn his failing grades into medical incompletes. So we had him execute a durable power of attorney with FERPA language, and my client took care of this for him. It was not a big deal, but he couldn't do it. The parents can. And so it's important that when our children, when our adult children are suffering, that we enable them to put people in place. And it doesn't have to be us as parents. You know, it can be a trusted friend. It can be an aunt. It can be a clergy person. It could be a social worker. But somebody's got to be in place to pick up the pieces and be a cushion in the event that our adult children, or heaven forbid one of us, needs decision-making and transacting to make sure that our world is stabilized for us at times when we may not be stabilized or when our families are destabilized. Not everyone will understand the acronym FERPA. Thank you, yes. It's the, it's the Federal Education Act. It's a privacy act, and I'm forgetting the R. Uh, federal Education, it might be Reconciliation, Privacy Act, just like HIPAA, the Healthcare Portability Act. It is an act that provides that our educational materials will be maintained privately. It gives us, as the student, the right to determine what gets disseminated. And by putting language in there into your durable power of attorney that nominates somebody else to receive information, we or our adult children can enable somebody else to receive that very private information. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Um, there are, you know, along the continuum, there's other types of legal planning tools. Uh, when COVID caused the United States to stand up and notice and walk into their homes and close the door in, in the shelter at home days. Immediately, I saw an uptick in guardianship and conservatorship needs. In fact, I ended up in court almost every week on many cases each week for a good couple of months where I was seeking guardianship and conservatorship for individuals for whom this pandemic created the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. These were individuals who had been suffering with mental illness or recovering uh, with mental illness and, and managing mental illness, but for whom the tipping point of the COVID threat caused a collapse and a decompensation. And so uh, I did seek a lot of guardianship and conservatorship at that time. Guardianship, for those who don't know, is the appointment of an individual to make personal decisions. Uh, and it's the appointment by a court. And that's where it's different than a healthcare proxy. It also includes 
more decisions than just healthcare decisions. It includes where a person's going to reside and, and all personal decisions, all of them, anything personal that's non-financial. And it's a court appointment, which means that the court has its eyes on the situation and is going to make sure that things are done with a particular standard of care, a best, a best interest standard of care with the court's guidance and oversight. A conservatorship is the court appointment of a conservator to make financial decisions for an individual who lacks mental capacity. And it's different than a durable power because it can be uh, more narrow or more broad, but again, there's court oversight. And so it's different than your durable power of attorney. Conservatorship would be used, for example, to assist an individual to purchase or sell real estate or to assist an individual with their own estate planning if, if they're lacking capacity, but have, but have the ability to express preference, even if their capacity to make actual decisions is limited. A guardianship, on the other hand, might be used, especially with special expanded authority, to enable treatment with antipsychotic medications, or in some situations, to enable psychosurgeries or ECT treatments or other treatments that can be very compassionate and very helpful and that would otherwise be out of reach for an individual who lacks capacity to give informed consent themselves. Um, so these are some of the tools that can be used at law to assist. There's, there's other tools as well. Um, one of the tools that I have used in some of my work where uh, you know, Virgil and I have worked together for the benefit of some of our clients, uh, where Virgil has used a clinical and placement aftercare continuum approach, and I've used a legal aftercare continuum approach, is using an incentive trust. This is a document that puts in place a trustee, somebody who can make uh, decisions uh, for an individual and release rewards to the individual for having achieved certain milestones. A milestone might be that the individual, the beneficiary of the trust, complies with a treatment plan and meets with her psychiatrist every week. And for that, the trustee might uh, provide a benefit, a reward, perhaps a financial reward. Sometimes it's not done through a trust, such as an incentive trust, a discretionary trust, or a special needs trust. Sometimes it's done with a memorandum of understanding, which is more in the way of a contract that leverages behavioral change. I did this, for example, uh, in connection with a family not too long ago, where a 17-year-old who was soon to turn 18 was uh, engaging in behaviors that were unsafe and uh, what we would all think of as delinquent. He was out late at night. He was getting involved in drugs. He was hanging out with people that were shady. He wasn't coming home. He was not respecting his parents' rules under their roof. Uh, curfews meant nothing to him. He was rude, and he was behaving in a nasty way, and the parents didn't know what to do, but they were concerned that he was working himself into a situation where he could end up in the criminal justice system. And so they were alarmed. And they, got, they asked me to help. We sat down with his trusted relatives, who were not his parents, it was his grandparents, and with him and with his parents. And we sat down and we developed a contract. We called it a memorandum of understanding. 
It was essentially a contract. Everybody signed on and it gave him rewards and consequences for meeting milestones and behavioral change um, criteria that everybody deemed to be necessary, but not excessive. And by having the grandparents at the table, we were able to uh, assist the son and his parents in their communications so that we were making sure, the grandparents were making sure that there was no excessive rules that were just reactionary. And in fact, we enabled him through a series of rewards. We couldn't give him cash, of course, because he was getting engaged in drugs. So cash was out of the, out of the question. But we gave him his pick of gym equipment. And the family built a gym for him in the basement. They finished the basement. And the work was done based on rewards. Every time he came home at his curfew of 10 p.m., more work would be done on the basement. Eventually, a gym was built down there, equipment was placed in there, and he had every reason to come home at curfew because he had a beautiful gym built for him. So that was another type of um, a, a way to leverage change by using a legal solution on a continuum of care before a mental health and drug addiction, uh, before it had a chance to even turn into criminal justice system involvement. That would have been... Uh, really contrary to what everybody wanted. Listening to not only your knowledge of the legal instruments, but this in particular is evidence of the wisdom that you have, both as a person as well as a social worker in the past, in, in addition to being an attorney. What sensitivity. It's wonderful that you were able to construct something that was so individualized and helpful. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I will tell you that people in your position, Virgil, and in my position, have a special recognition of the need to use a sixth sense, intuition, and creativity in our problem solving. You know, you, you and I went to school and we learned a practice and we, we learned a profession. And we expected to practice our profession, but along the way, you learn that nothing is textbook, and you need to be creative and you need to build. And, and, and ultimately, you navigate systems for people. And that's why we work well together. You know, I come to you with my clients' needs. And, and thank you, you've come to me with your clients' needs. And this is why the synergistic output of legal clinical placement along that continuum of care is so powerful because we can give our clients this type of creative sensitive approach. And this is the work that we do together. Sometimes uh, along the lines of legal solutions, sometimes it's too late and somebody is in the criminal justice system. And we wonder, what do we do there? You know, it, it's already happened there and the, they're, they're being arraigned and how can we help? Well, another legal solution would be for me to contact or for a clinician to contact the assistant district attorney or the district attorney that is prosecuting the case against somebody whom we know has a mental health issue. This would be, for example, the loved one of a client of ours. In that situation, I would call the DA's office and speak with either the DA or, or that person's designee, the assistant district attorney most commonly, and I would explain that we have a mental health recovery issue 
on our hands here, and that the individual that is about to appear for arraignment or whatever it is for, for the pretrial in, in the criminal matter, if it's already gotten that far, uh, really should have a probation order that the case should not go to judgment with a finding of guilt but instead should go to a probation order and a continuation without any negative or injurious finding that the probation order could track some clinical milestones and clinical criteria aimed at leveraging behavioral change. So I could, for example, say to the ADA, the assistant district attorney, that we believe that the person who's the subject of the criminal proceeding should go to therapy once a week, should uh, take drug screens, you know, maybe random urine screens, or perhaps five or seven panel tox screens for various substances. Um, or perhaps we might recommend uh, treatment with medications, that kind of thing, or, or check-ins with a probation officer, check-ins with a clinician, um, or, or participation in outpatient hospitalization, partial, partial hospitalization, or even um, placement at a sober house for a period of time and then a longer-term residential community placement. But whatever it is that I would be recommending would be at the uh, request of my clients, uh, who are the family members of the loved one who's going through the cl criminal justice system, and with the recommendation of the clinicians involved in the case. And in this way, I would try to influence and persuade the criminal court to treat this as a mental health case. At the same time, I would be trying to influence the outcome so that we're looking after the mental health needs of the loved one. And, and that, I think, is, is what we do when we try to finesse and navigate through various uh, milieu and try to, to solve for the correct problem. Tossing someone in jail is not solving for the correct problem. But when, when you and I get together, Virgil, and we work on these cases for our shared clients, or when we consult for each other on each other's clients, that's what we're doing. We're finding a way to finesse a result for the better of our clients. Um, sometimes what we do involves getting some government benefits, and sometimes that means enabling our clients to get SSI, some, some income, or SSDA, which is disability-based income. Sometimes we get people on Medicaid, and, and when we do that, when we're talking about these special types of benefits, then we also need to be thinking about special needs trusts because uh, if there are assets there, we need to make sure that they are uh, not countable so that the individual can receive the benefit and not have their existing assets be counted against eligibility. And that whole conversation is far broader than the topic of our discussion today, but I wanted just to spot that issue for people so that people don't act in a reflexive way without speaking to counsel. What an amazing array, Lisa, and you're so expert in all of this. You know, looking at, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing these legal remedies offer both sort of sometimes a containment as well as a platform for recovery planning. One other legal remedy that I'd like for us to touch on for just a moment, uh, looking at how the future can sometimes be better managed, 
can we talk a moment about the psychiatric advance directive? Uh, to what yes. extent do you work with families using that? Yes, absolutely. That is a wonderful tool. Um, I, I practice in Massachusetts. We have offices in other areas of the country, but mostly in Massachusetts. These documents are not used enough, and I'm so glad you mentioned it. They are a uh, often forgotten tool. This is a document that is sort of a quasi-healthcare proxy, but it's limited and it's specific and detailed with respect to psychiatric treatments and treatment authority. The advantage here around the country and really globally is that each state, each state has its own particular rules about what uh, healthcare proxy agents are allowed to decide and what falls outside of their responsibility and authority. And state law also controls what guardians and conservators can decide and what falls outside of the scope of their authority. And if you have a psychiatric advance directive, you can really nail it. You can really get to the point of what authority an agent has uh, to make decisions and what treatment options the individual himself or herself would have consented to or would have refused if they were competent to voice that. So there may be people who, when competent, know that they have a propensity to go from manic to psychotic and they know that they place their own assets at risk unless they're immediately treated. And they know when they're competent that they would want to accept antipsychotic medications or they would want to have a series of ECT treatments or whatever it is to treat either the mania or the depression or whatever it is, the psychosis, whatever that is that is causing them to step out of their sphere of being okay. And at that time, at that difficult time, when they're in a decompensated state, they're not able to express what they want. And in fact, uh, people sometimes who are manic are acting against their own interest at that very moment and saying the opposite of what they know they would have wanted if they were competent to express their preference. So a psychiatric advance directive allows the world to recognize what an individual would have consented to at that moment if they then had the capacity to do so, and it puts a person in place to voice it. And in this way, we can bring a person who is decompensated back uh, to a recovery state using this document. And it's not used enough but it's a very powerful tool so long as states will recognize it. Some people put language, psychiatric advance directive language, into a healthcare proxy. And that is one way to make sure that a state will recognize it. And that's, I, I do recommend that in certain states, but it's all state law controlled. So it, whoever is considering one of these documents, I urge you to speak to a lawyer. You're welcome to contact me, but speak to a lawyer and make sure that you're executing this document in the right way according to the state where you presently reside. For a moment, again, for the listeners, what you've just heard is an amazing sort of set of knowledge and a depth of wisdom that Lisa brings to this field. 
We talked about healthcare proxy, durable power of attorney, guardianship, conservatorship, discretionary trusts, memoranda of understanding, probation orders, gaining government benefits, and lastly, the psychiatric advance directive. That's a lot to try and incorporate, but we want you to be aware as family members and as professionals who need to know about this, of this array of remedies. By the way, at the end of the podcast, in about 15 minutes or so, Lisa is also going to give you her contact information, cell phone and email, so that you can follow up with questions if you wish. I think that the listeners are beginning to see that often their attorney can be an important member of the overall recovery team for their family member. And This podcast and our approach also emphasizes the importance of parents being on that recovery team as well. Often parents feel separated from that team, but we're hoping that the knowledge that you just heard from Lisa will help you bring up questions, bring up possible solutions that sometimes the mental health professionals are just just not aware of. And we've talked about how a plan for care and treatment is not just about managing symptoms of mental illness, but about incentivizing individuals with mental illness to really work toward their dreams and goals and to find a sense of belonging and purpose in life. So planning is not just about addressing the diagnosis, it's about defining and achieving the dream. By the way, the overall planning approach, uh, which we won't go into detail about here, can be found in a book that we recently published that was authored by me and Stephanie McMahon. It's called A Family Guide to Mental Health Recovery and includes some of what Lisa has also just described. You can find it on Amazon by searching on my name, Virgil Stucker, or by going to our website, virgilstuckerandassociates.com. So, Lisa, let's move to a couple of other shifts that seem to be occurring. Having listened to some of the remedies that you've described as being accessible through attorney, through your support, and perhaps the family attorneys who can turn to you for consultation, one of the shifts that's occurring is it seems like it's so much harder sometimes to gain access to psychiatric inpatient beds. Already we know that the number of psychiatric inpatient beds has been decreasing. And it's even less now during the pandemic because some of the psychiatric beds have been repurposed and they're being used for COVID-19 cases. And I'm concerned that some of those psychiatric beds may never actually even reopen for those who need that care. We're also finding experiences where in emergency departments, sometimes people with psychiatric distress, even to the point of being suicidal, are being turned away, not being offered care. How can an attorney as an advisor and team member with the family help, if possible, in these cases where you know distress is so high and access sometimes so limited? Are there any ways that You can help our systems, Lisa, to do what they're legally required to do. Well, thank you. You've identified a significant problem, and I I wish I could solve it. I I can't solve for the decreasing number of beds, of course. None of us can. But there are things that we can do together in tandem to make sure that our clients are prioritized and that their needs are met. 
just about two, not even two weeks ago, maybe about 10 or 12 days ago, uh, I received a phone call from the ex-wife of one of my clients for whom I serve as trustee. I had handled his divorce and he has remained very close to his ex-wife. So this is a friend of his, a dear, dear friend. She called and said, you know, he called me at 2.30 in the morning and he didn't sound right. And I just want to give you a heads up. And I serve as his trustee. I've, I've been working with him for years and years. And I am the person who picks up pieces when there are problems. And I get heads up from family members, from the ex-wife, whoever it is, from clinicians. People give me the heads up and, and people come to me to help. And in that situation, I... Uh, knew something was up. I tried to reach my client by phone. We had a short and concerning conversation. And I had the sense that his ex was correct. He was not doing too well. I had a sense that uh, his mental status was declining and that he was decompensating. And uh, he was making reference to some bizarre things that were happening that I didn't believe were happening but that had, I thought, some roots in COVID-19-based anxiety that had been misinterpreted and his thoughts about it were already disconnected and misguided um, and had, he had created a whole set of thinking that was bizarre and not related to COVID, but I saw that there was some connection and I knew that we were in for trouble. So he ended up going to his ex's house and I managed to somehow convince him to go to a hospital that was local. And I called the hospital in advance and I gave the acute psychiatric team at the hospital a heads up that when he went in complaining of a particular somatic issue, he was complaining of a, of a bodily issue. I gave him the heads up about what really was going on, which was not so much somatic, but more psychosomatic. It was really a psychiatric issue, and his complaints were the manifestation of a psychiatric issue. And I, I was able to give the emergency room psychiatric triage team a heads up as he was driving to the hospital, and we were able to get him in. Um, I stayed in touch with the hospital all night, and I asked that they not discharge him. And sometimes it takes that kind of influence and dedication to the persuasive um, role that will keep somebody in a hospital long enough that, yes, they can get a bed. And so I managed somehow. He got a bed. He was admitted. Um, but I... I had to keep influencing and persuading it. You can't just think it's going to happen anymore because there is a shortage of beds, just as you said, Virgil. And, and, and the squeaky wheel gets the grease sometimes. And, and sometimes with psychiatric issues, people can say, oh, the person looks stable now. You know, the psychiatric triage team We'll do a quick interview. You know, we, we've seen this happen so many times. Quick interview, oh, the person's stable. They're answering my questions appropriately. They recognize what they did. They feel badly about it. They feel remorse, send them home. But the person's not quite stable. Or 
the things that led to the hospitalization have not changed. And so the person's just going to be in the revolving door and back tomorrow or next week or whenever. So it, it takes uh, an effort to get somebody into a bed. So that's, that's one way to do it. Um, there's another way. I, in, in this particular situation that I mentioned, my client did drive to the hospital because there was a somatic complaint. And so I was able to sort of elevate that complaint in his mind enough to alarm him enough to get him to the hospital without talking about the psychiatric issues. But sometimes that doesn't exist. And I have in the past needed to uh, confer with psychiatrists. I have needed to go see my clients, put my eyes on my clients at their homes or wherever they are, and confer with a psychiatrist by telephone, bring a psychiatrist into the situation, uh, and assist with uh, a emergency hospitalization and EMT transport to a hospital. And, and it can be done. It's unfortunate, but it can be done. And that is another way that I can help people get into hospitals and ultimately eventually uh, into inpatient, more the, more the residential inpatient care, but just getting them into the acute care, that's the first step. It's sort of like getting a huge car into first gear. It's a heavy burden to make it happen. But once it's there, once your car's in gear, then you can usually start rolling along and then get the person into residential inpatient care you know, I, I remember that you and I had a case, uh, and actually it was July 3rd, it was just around this time, July 3rd of uh, 2019, you called and said, we have a situation that's going to require a one of our synergistic approaches together, where we need to assist a family to transport somebody out of one psychiatric hospital and into a longer term, uh, high cal very high caliber residential inpatient center in a different state and we worked together from July 3rd through the July 4th weekend and right around this day last year we were successful uh, it was right around the 8th of July or so that we were or the 9th of July that we were able to have this young woman transported to a very high caliber, longer term residential inpatient center in a different state. And, and, and our client's daughter was escorted by very professional people. The whole, we had consultants from beginning to end, and it was done in a magical and caring way, and everything worked out quite well. But I'll tell you, it required extraordinary coordination and we were all on a text stream and receiving texts at all hours of day and night as the transport was being made, guided by escorts. But it all worked out, thank heavens. So Lisa, thank you for those stories. This is pointing to the importance of teamwork, of creative thinking. I'm thinking about how you helped that gentleman get into the hospital. I don't think that you were this quote squeaky wheel but I can imagine that a call from you as attorney with your wisdom, with your knowledge of the client, really helped to open the doors and keep them open. What a great ally you are in that process. And yes, indeed, you are a great team member. I've enjoyed the sort of synergistic relationship that we've had. You know, one other shift that we're seeing is for a while, it was very difficult to access some of the residential inpatient options beyond acute care, subacute and longer term residential care. And it was harder for right reason. 
the people who were leading these programs had to be very, very careful given the COVID-19 issues. They locked down, they followed the CDC guidelines, following Johns Hopkins information. We've been monitoring over a hundred programs across the country. What I've noticed is the residential programs have, that we work with have not had a single COVID-19 case. And I think that's remarkable, remarkable leadership. And I'm seeing now that through that remarkable leadership and very careful approaches, a lot of these options are now opening, not just walking in the door, of course, of course with continued care and observation regarding not just psychological, but physiological concerns with COVID. So I'm really pleased with the mental health leadership that I see across the country that has attended to these matters so well. Let's move on to another shift. And I see that we've got a little bit of time, hopefully time to, I think, look at what I see as somewhat of a positive shift that's been occurring in the mental health field. You know, it's actually becoming easier to access virtual therapeutic and treatment services. And I'd like to get to some comments from you, Lisa, about how you are being engaged by clients, by families, uh, as an attorney who's also had to, had to distance. But first, just, you know, I'd like to sort of applaud some of the outpatient providers in particular who so quickly adapted to the face-to-face communication with clients and with their families. Um, and actually, with some clients at home, I've seen sort of remarkable turnarounds. I've seen a young man who was chronically suicidal suddenly decide, I want to live. I don't want this COVID to take my life. So it shifted his thinking. I've seen a young man with schizophrenia who was terribly paranoid about his parents, uh, now living at home, really feel the comfort of home, and his paranoia has dramatically diminished. And during this process, I'm seeing therapists and other outpatient providers be present in the home through the computer connections, which, yes, of course, face-to-face is generally the best way to do this. But it is so amazing to me that how some of the virtual connections have actually brought positive results and will likely continue to do so after COVID has hopefully been managed, contained, and eventually obliterated. But in the meantime, this continues. Can you give us a sense, Lisa, of how you as attorney have adapted during the time of COVID? I mean, how, you, can't, you can't go to court. You can't go have someone come into your office so easily. So how has this been working for you as an attorney dealing with families with mental health issues without being able to be face-to-face? Thank you. That's a great question. And you're so right in saying that things have in some ways become better, ironically. My, my mind was really um, wonderfully blown. And early on, I was asked to assist to get a guardianship transferred from one state to the other state early on in the COVID situation. I had a a prospective client um, in Florida, and I needed to get a medical certificate for the purpose of a guardianship 
in Massachusetts. And, and I needed to have a, a, a clinician who was physically in Florida evaluate the person who was physically in Florida, but the case was going to be in Massachusetts. And so it needed to be a Massachusetts physician in Florida evaluating a Florida patient. I immediately sent out my typical email when I need help to all of the clinicians and, and providers who I trust and who I think could help to see. It was the middle of winter. It was March, you know, and I thought, gee, some, somebody's a, a snowbird. One of, one of us is going to be out there in Florida right now who's a Massachusetts clinician who's going to be sipping on their coffee and, and receive my email and say, hey, I can do it. I, I'm a Massachusetts psychiatrist you know, vacationing or wintering in, in Florida, you know, I can take care of this. And instead, clinicians got back to me, they were way ahead of the curve on this, and said, we can provide, everybody said, anybody can do it, you know, anyone in Mass, anyone with a Massachusetts license can do this in a HIPAA-enabled Zoom or telephonic psychiatry call. It can be done, there's a mechanism for this, and I had the entire job done uh, by a HIPAA-compliant, Zoom-enabled technology within 24 hours. Um, and this was, and without anybody having to meet face-to-face, -face, without having to have anybody be in Florida, it it was it was done immediately, and it can be done anywhere. And it completely changed my mindset about how we can meet client needs with less expense, less, less burden, um, with much higher benefit, much less cost. It's just incredible. And in fact, when I started my guardianship and conservatorship hearings, when we were all locked in at the shelter at home uh, period of the COVID, in, in, immediately the courts closed down and hearings were done by telephone. Uh, the telephonic hearing would take no more than 15 minutes. Now, keep in mind, I used to drive maybe 30 minutes to an hour to court. I'd find a parking spot if I was lucky. I'd get into the courthouse. You go through the metal detectors. You see a bunch of lawyer friends of yours. You know, like the courtroom is my living room, really, because I know so many lawyers. I've been doing this so long that you walk in and it's, you're socializing. As soon as you walk in, you know, you're carrying your briefcase instead of a, a drink. And, and I would go through the courthouse. It would take forever just to get to the courtroom because you're saying hello to everybody on your way. Two hours later, you get there and you're in the courtroom and you're speaking with your client and you're, you're you know, getting ready for the case. And then you have to sit and wait and you wait and you sit with your client and you wait while the court's hearing other matters and you're waiting for your case to be called. And then you get called and you've got a 15 minute hearing and then you've got to go down to the registry of probate. You've got to get your papers that have been signed by the judge and they now need to be certified and stamped and, and copied and filed and docketed and this and that. And then you drive back to your office after retrieving your car and that is a six hour day. That was six hours of time. Right now when I'm having, when I'm hearing a case, when I'm, when I'm arguing a case, it's 15 minutes. And that's it, it's 15 minutes from beginning to end. Now, I could never bill my clients for six hours, but certainly they were paying for my travel time and they were paying for the time that it took for me to sit and wait in the courtroom for the case to be called. Uh, because I couldn't work for other clients when I was sitting in a courtroom waiting for the case to be called. So. 
now none of that expense is there and I'm billing 15 minutes for a court appearance that can be a complete game changer in somebody's life. And it's a 15 minute court appearance. It's beautiful. So the medical certificate, the medical information that I need uh, in terms of the face-to-face communication that's required by the, uh, the client's family member and a clinician and the production of evidence that I need to get to court and my hearing itself can all be done so quickly and so inexpensively that guardianship has completely changed. Uh, and, and I can tell you that this adaptation is going to last longer because I don't think that any of us in the bar are going to want to go back to the inefficiencies that used to exist that now no longer need to exist. Thank you for that story. You know, the adaptation Lisa, I think when the history is written of this time, you're going to go down in the history books as one of the legal leaders of the age of adaptation. It's amazing how facile you are with changing and adding efficiency and effectiveness as you're doing it. Lisa, I think we're nearing the end here. Remember, we wanted to have our listeners know how they could reach you with their questions. I imagine you've stirred some thoughts and some hopes and desires in the listeners of this podcast regarding the legal remedies that you've offered. And probably even some attorneys who may be listening are now aware that they too can increase their adaptability. So how can our listeners reach you? Can you offer the connection information? Thank you, Virgil. Uh, The best way to reach me is by cell, and you are welcome. Anyone is welcome to reach me by cell. Uh, It's best to try to text me in case I'm on the phone. That way I can get back to you because I'll get the chime. The cell phone number is 617-966-9582. Again, that's 617-966-9582. And I can also be reached by email. My email address is lcukier, spelled L-C-U-K-I-E-R, at burnslev.com. That is B as in boy, U-R-N as in Nancy, S as in Sam, L-E-V as in victory, Dot com. So the email address is lcoukier at burnslev.com. Thank you so much. Any closing words for our listeners, Lisa? Uh, my, I, I don't have many closing words other than to say I wish everybody health and resilience. Resilience is, is really where it's at. Adaptation, health, and resilience. Lisa, I wish the same for you, too. Thank you for all you do for the many families in distress and for the help that you've given them. And thank you for participating in our Mental Horizons podcast today. There will also be a blog about the podcast with a link on our website, Virgil Stucker and Associates. That's Virgil, V-I-R-G-I-L, Stucker, S-T-U-C-K-E-R, and spelled out A-N-D, Associates, plural.com, Virgil Stucker and Associates.com. Thank you for being with us, and I thank you to our listeners as well.